Goddag og velkommen til Langsomme Samtaler, der sætter verden sammen. Mit navn er Rune Løkkeberg. I denne uge har jeg talt med den britiske sociolog Anthony Giddens, der måske mere end nogen anden har præget vores opfattelse af de moderne samfund, det moderne liv og moderniteten som sådan. Giddens har skrevet adskillige klassikere, som er pensum over det hele i vores uddannelsesystem. Der er flere generationer, der er vokset op med Giddens forståelse af modernitet og Giddens forståelse af os selv. Giddens er også en politisk tænker som i 1990'erne foretog et radikalt opgør med det, han kaldte The Old Left, den gamle venstrefløj. Og i stedet for var han med til at lancere noget, der hed Den Tredje Vej. Den Tredje Vej var for nogen et moderne forsøg på at gentænke venstrefløjen, for andre var det det totale forfald. Giddens grundtanke var, at de gamle venstreorienterede tanker ikke passede til en ny virkelighed, at man skulle omfavne det, som han kaldte for den nye individualisme, og man i stedet for at se globaliseringen som en nyliberalistisk redsel, der knuste vores sociale stater, skulle se den som mulighed for at udvikle vores samfundskab, frihed og mulighed for borgerne at lave et helt nyt kompromis mellem demokrati og kapitalisme. Good evening and welcome to our viewers here in Denmark and especially welcome to you Sir Anthony Giddens who is with us from London. Thank you so very much for taking your time. It's a great pleasure to be here, and I'd like to say hello to everybody or anyone who's in the audience. And I look forward to a nice little conversation and discourse with you. Jeg taler med Gens om alt det her, om klimaforandringer, om moderniteten, om vores samfund, om hvordan de har reageret på pandemien, om han er rystet over modernitetens svaghed eller forbløffet over de moderne samfundsstyrke. Og så vender vi tilbage til den tredje vej, der for mange er den store kritik af Anthony Giddens, men for ham selv er blevet karikeret og udsat for en fuldstændig urimelig kritik. God fornøjelse med min samtale med Anthony Giddens. Everyone here knows your work, not all of your work, I, I, but you've been such an influence here in Denmark for several generations, and you've helping us. Don't mention too many generations, if you don't mind. <laughs> For two or three generations. But I'm just very impressed by the scope of your work, ranging from the the criticism of Marx's class theory, which struck me as a young man, and, and your explorations of intimacy and family life and teaching us how to understand modernity. So thank you so much for your work. You've been a great helper. Well, the first work I wrote when I was a student at the LSE was actually on the sociology of sport. <laughs> so you don't know about that bit. No. That, that effectively got me kicked out of the LSE, but it actually helped kickstart my career in a way I won't um, bore people with. But the world <laughs> moves laterally. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Now we're in the middle of this pandemic. And we have several narratives about it. Some are saying, well, this pandemic shows the limits to modernity, that now we are confronted with forces that we cannot master. And now we are confronted with the limits to what we can do. And others are saying, no, look at how we handle this pandemic, the vaccine rollout, the global spread of information and the global conversation about the pandemic. I think there are some truth to both of the of the views. How do you see it as confirming the strength of our modernity or pointing us to the limits of it? 
Well, if I might say so, I think so many people who write about the pandemic have the wrong starting point. They argue as though the world was motoring along all right in some way. Then the pandemic came along and disrupted everything. Well, obviously, there's a certain amount of truth in that. But I think you, you have to begin from a very different position. And I, I think it's important to get, as it were, a take on the pandemic. This is not just a repeat of previous pandemics, but something quite different. It's spread around the world with unbelievable speed. That never happened before. Uh, many other consequences are just kind of, to use a term, zoomed around the world in a way that uh, never happened before. This also applies, incidentally, to the solutions that are being pioneered. So I, I've taken to call it the world's first digidemic. It sounds like a trivializing term, but I don't mean it as a trivializing term. I want to argue the digidemic or the current pandemic is shaped by the forces we have to understand um, almost more than it has shaped them. And if I can just mention what um, some of these are, it comes back actually to um, my, my version of globalization because uh, I want to argue that um, in the current period, we're living in a new phase of history. Um, I don't use the terms modernity and post-modernity and so forth anymore. I say we're living off the edge of history. We're in a space where humanity has not been before. That has actually created the pandemic in its form, but it's also created various kinds of very novel consequences uh, of it too. I can just mention one of the major factors for me is the impact of the digital revolution and AI. I've spent the last oh, five or six years absorbed with these um, because I think they're so deeply transformative. Note what we're doing today. We couldn't have done this even a few years ago. So um, this is a key part of the backdrop to it all and also the ways in which we've handled the pandemic, I think. And there's a lot to be said about that that I hope we can discuss. But I mean, I use the term, as I said, now off the edge of history, we're in a kind of different phase of history. Another, another really significant change we all know is, is the shift in geopolitics. This is something like the beginning of the Asian century and certainly the relative decline of European and American power um, as compared to other parts of the world. Uh, then you've got the biggest change that humanity has perhaps ever experienced, the impact of humanly induced climate change, coming, as we know, to some kind of crucial point. And just as important, you've got all the changes in everyday life um, around gender, around sexuality, and around ethnicity. As deeply transformative to me in a world that's moved off the edge of history as the, as the rest of these changes. So the vaccine story is an interesting one because it's been deeply preemptive. If you go back to the um, pandemic of uh, 1918, which is in some ways the nearest analogue, you have 1.5 billion people in the world, 100 million people might have died, we don't really know, in that pandemic. Imagine if that had happened today, what the death rate globally would be. The death rate is vastly smaller. That's because we have managed a globally adaptive response 
in which digital connection has played a crucial role. It's not just lockdowns. They had those in 1918. It's the way in which that has been integrated with digital ways of carry on. So many businesses have kind of reinvented themselves actually digitally at this period. And one of the questions we can discuss later is whether these things will, will hang around, you know, but um, I think there's a certain core level where our response has been dramatically successful in reducing what could have otherwise happened. I want to suggest to you, this is not just a period of disaster, although there are many tragedies, of course. It's a period of massive innovation, a period of massive creativity, and we won't come out of it in the same way which we went in it, not just in the negative way of, of dealing with the pandemic, but something much more interesting, deeply structural. And I think if you look at the, the story of the vaccines, that is also quite extraordinary. Could not have happened probably even before the last 15, 20 years. You've had a whole range of vaccines created around the world, still ongoing. Large part of the reason for that is that scientists can communicate directly with one another and pass on data around the world. Um, the Chinese uh, scientists decoded the genetic structure of the virus 10 days after it was identified using AI. They did, in fact, release it to the rest of the world, although there was a bit of a clampdown mm -hmm. after that. So, you know, our response has been a deeply preemptive one. And it's a much more complex thing than just saying, oh, the world was going along and then, look what's happened, we got the <laughs> pandemic, and how are we going to sort our way through it? Of course, that is a crucial set of questions, but we must think about it in a much more sophisticated way, I think. Uh, especially for someone like me working in the academic world who wants to look for the structural backdrop to all of this. So I still see it as, uh, you know, the famous theorist um, Ulrich Beck spoke of the emergence of risk society. And if there's ever an example of risk society, it's this current pandemic and it's spread around the world. But I have a different view. I call it a high risk, high opportunity world. And I quite often put opportunity before risk. The thing is that many of the opportunities we haven't experienced before, nor uh, the same applies to the risks. So the world as a whole is in new territory here. And the, the spread of the pandemic is both an exemplification of that, but so also is our, our response to it. Studying and, and actually writing about climate change for, for a long time, back in the 90s even, you were writing that social democracy would have to reckon with climate change and, and had to understand in order to be successful that nature was not just a resource that we can use. And having written about climate change for decades, I tend myself to be a little pessimistic about the, the human capacity to act in concert and to act on risk. But here during the pandemic, have you been surprised by our capacity in societies defined by activity and a lot of people's lives defined by their pleasures, their culture, their consume, by our collective ability to actually shut down and leave the planes on the ground for a while? Well, there's a bit, you know, the climate change issue is a huge one. This is a perfect example of being off the edge of history. No previous 
period of civilization ever has had to confront the possibility of something like the destruction of our civilization by unstoppable climate change, because we've only probably got 20 or so years before um, it, it, it might be too late. Of course, since we haven't been here before, we don't know. But this is a really interesting part of the current situation. Greta Thunberg, about three years ago, she went to Davos. Um, there was a person called Donald Trump, who was the president of the United States at that time, and a range of other leaders. And she said to them, why can't, look, here we are mobilizing to confront the pandemic. Why can't we mobilize for the much greater threat of climate change? Now, I would suggest to you, she, in a way, got hold of something, you know, grasped something which is in fact now happening because the response to the pandemic in the European Union, in the United States, and actually in a whole range of countries around the world is a deeply activist one. It's deeply integrated with massive schemes of reconstruction built around renewable energy. It's a sort of process of restoring. If you look at what Biden is proposing, for example, it's rebuilding the American economy around renewable industries, around other aspects of ecological modernization, making those the core of the economy. It's not just a dreamy thing, it's quite real. I'm assuming it gets, I think a large part it will get through Congress. This is, I think you can, you know, you put that alongside the European Green Deal, three trillion euros and about three trillion dollars. That is a fantastic reversal of history. We have the responsibility to make sure, and the leaders do, that it's a positive one. It gives us the possibility of actually confronting climate change as perhaps the most serious of the range of threats that we face. And it's extraordinary because it is like a global thing. Saudi Arabia has a huge green initiative now. Of course, you don't know how these things will work out in practice, but God, it's ambitious. 50% of energy from renewables in Saudi Arabia by 2030, planting billions of trees, not just in Saudi Arabia, but across, across the Middle East. Then you've got China, who's now set up plans to reach net zero. We know that China, on the whole, tends to do what it says it's going to do. So this could, well, this could be the verge of a really big transformation at a key point of our history when we've got to bring these things together and take decisive action against climate change. Now, of course, they're too early to say how they'll actually work out. But to me, this means this is the end of the neoliberal era. Um, if neoliberalism means, as I take it to mean, that it's not just the importance of markets, but the markets have some kind of special wisdom and you must trust them with fundamental decisions. It, that was pioneered at my institution, London School of Economics, by von Hayek, who was perhaps the principal theorist. That was Thatcherism, and that was a good deal of American neoliberalism. But this, this is now being very deeply transformed. 
you know, it's still, as I say, in a transitional state, but therefore could be quite a profound transformation, especially if it becomes global. And there is just the point, you know, the possibility, and I hope it's an actuality, that the pandemic alerted us to our own fragility and therefore suggested to us not just the issue, yes, we've got to have better medical care, yes, we've got to be more prepared, but alerted us to our more global fragility. Um, and I think that is, is a very possible scenario. That having been said, it's all in its like formative stages, but I think it's a more remarkable turnaround than anything that happened in the 1930s, for example. It's on a far more global level, and the schemes are deeply ambitious. Of course, we're in the early stages, and nobody can say just how much core effect they will have, but they seem to me to be, you know, so powerful that there is a kind of coming together of the world. And I, I've been digitally in the parliament today listening to Boris Johnson's program, right? Boris Johnson is a conservative. The conservatives come from the tradition of Thatcherite neoliberalism. Here he is proposing a massive investment plan, massive plan of, of actually redistribution in the country, uh, a transition to renewable energy on the last on the large scale, a sort of UK version of what's happening in other parts of the world. So we're in a transitional stage, but there is just the possibility that Greater might have been asking the right question here. And we have to hope deeply that um, the world is capable of making this sort of transition. And as you know, COP26 is happening in the UK, actually, and it's probably, to my mind, I've been to several COPs in the past, including the one in Copenhagen, actually. Yes. The big failure. Produced, right, produced the Copenhagen Accord, which is still sort of hanging fire sort of <laughs> 18 years later, really, although it had some impact. So, I mean, I'm fully in accord with those who say this is a climate emergency. I don't think that's an exaggerated phrase. And it's just possible this could be the juncture that mobilizes global society to take substantive measures of the radical kind that have to be achieved. But since it's all in the planning stage and these things have to be mobilized, it's impossible to say how far these things will come to pass. But I do see it therefore as a pretty significant, crucial transition, in, potentially in world history. The geopolitical situation is quite open at the moment because on the one hand, you have this COP regime where you actually agree on collective action, collective measures. And we have this COP that we look very much forward to in Glasgow that is going to be decisive for the commitments of the next year's climate action. So we have kind of the world coming together. We have China announcing very ambitious targets. America is back in business. We, have, we thought maybe the UK leaving the European Union, they wouldn't be ambitious on climate Boris Johnson seems ambitious as well. The European Union is restrained in what it can do because of the institution it is, but it does more than we expected a year ago. So there are reasons for optimism here. On the other hand, we see great powers not trusting each other. We see that the US says now we want to be a climate leader, 
But you and I both know they can elect a new Donald Trump in four years and it's all over again. And we have the US, they want to compete with China. They want to criticize China. But in order to make a, a transformation to solar energy, they must also buy something from China. So it seems that this geopolitical situation is somewhat complicating uh, the green transformation of the world. How do you see this situation? Well, I mean, you put your finger on it. Um, the, the, I mentioned the geopolitical transition as one of my range of transformations. And it's not just um, China. I think it is a, a sort of global shift of power um, towards Asia more generally and away from the um, European and um, US um, arena. Um, but as to how this will pan out, you know, that's what it means to live off the edge of history. We, these divisions are quite acute in some ways, as we all know, between China, let's say, and the US. Uh, there's a huge interchange around AI and um, digital transformation. We know about that. There are uh, plenty of geopolitical tensions around that. For example, high proportion of semiconductors that you need for digital interconnection are made in Taiwan, actually. And Taiwan is suddenly a sort of focus of world attention, again, along with Hong Kong. So they're, they're, these are huge shifts. These are part of what I'm, I'm talking about, these geopolitical shifts. The rise of China is something never been seen before in that period of history. You know, 40 million people died under Mao only about 40 years ago. Now, it's a highly developed society of 1.3 billion people. It's quite extraordinary. But to me, you know, AI and the digital revolution are kind of frontline issues. And I've thought that from a long while back in these things. Um, if anyone in the audience wants a really good book on these things, I'm allowed to mention books. One of my favorite books is Kai-Fu Lee, Kai-Fu Lee, AI Superpowers, which traces out the sort of evolution of this um, development. But uh, this is really a frontline connection, I think, between the changes I'm talking about, meaning living off the edge of history and geopolitics. It's crucial that the world manages to get a decent accommodation to pilot a way through. And again, you have to think, well, could it be that climate change could just be one main element that creates that? Because it's so obviously something that we all share in common. As soon as you recognize the level of risk, as soon as you recognize that humanity has never faced anything like this before, as soon as you recognize we're close to the crunch point, which I think the Chinese have absolutely now realized. It also is, a, is in principle a force for quite dramatic global cooperation as well. So we do have to see how, first of all, COP26 pans out, but we all have to track these um, developments. And I've actually got deeply involved with the study of AI because it seems to me this is like an existential moment for humanity in a different way from climate change, actually. And AI is a frontier between China, the US, and Europe, as we know. 
And there are many aspects of that kind of interconnection which are full of tensions, but also possibilities because we're actually going to need to deploy AI, I think, as part of the struggle against climate change. Incidentally, we wouldn't know about climate change without the early development of AI, which came from the satellite system set up when the US responded to Sputnik 1 and 2. And it's that um, satellite system which allows us to study weather patterns. And it, you know, GPS was essentially a quasi-military invasion, mm -hmm. however, which is now crucial for our monitoring of the overall patterns of, of world temperatures. And the same goes actually for uh, venturing into space. There's pretty deep connection with AI too, because it's only AI uh, monitored machines that have allowed us to see what's happening on the ocean bed, many thousands of feet below in the deep, in the ocean deeps. So really interesting complex of factors here, I think. Another very interesting complex is something you've been describing and analyzing for decades as well, namely globalization. And you were very, early to point out that globalization was not just about economics. It wasn't just an economic process of trade. It was cultural, it was social, and it was technological as well. And now with the pandemic, we see someone say, of course, globalization is over. And of course, it's not over. But we see some changes. Uh, we see how the trade agreements are being renegotiated. We see how large powers are trying to bring home their value change and, and their, their supply change. And we see the European Union talking about strategic autonomy. So how, how do you see the changes of globalization coming out of the pandemic, where even America is being a little uh, protectionist now and speaking of by American? Well, I, I think I was one of the very first people to use the term globalization way back in the 1980s, when it was a new term, actually. Not yes. many people know that, but globalization is a product of itself. You know, it's a very recent term in historical, in a historical sense, and um, it's been pretty deeply controversial ever since then. But by globalization, I've always meant interconnection. That's something much deeper than simply trade, and I think that's quite wrong. So many political commentators still do it, but to uh, think of globalization as primarily economic and to discuss it in economic terms. Obviously, economic globalization is very important, but there are much deeper senses in which this is the most interconnected world ever by far. And to me, that's, you know, climate change is, is an instance in a certain sense of global interconnection. So, and I think this is the most interconnected world ever, and therefore there's never been a world globalized like this, if you think of it in terms of digital interconnection. Let's say I'm a Chinese migrant at London, I get out my mobile phone, I call my family back home, I can see them on my phone and they can see me, and apparently for nothing. Well, the mobile phone is more powerful than the supercomputers that sent human beings to the moon. So. <laughs> Well, this is a level of interconnection, again, the world has never experienced before, and I'd like to get the idea off the edge of history into the audience's minds in a sense, because we're pioneers in a, in a new age, I think. The digital component is a modern part of that. 
but um, certainly the you know the geopolitical tensions are quite acute, and there are very difficult issues to resolve around who controls the patents and what power they give. We know this with 5G. We know this with the role of Huawei and Chinese digital companies in Western countries and quite often the reverse is so. So those things we have to pioneer our way through. Um, and as in so many other areas, we're in more or less the initial stages of trying to do that, but we have to do it with urgency because of the scale of the issues which surround us. So there are many more things one could say about that than I would have time to do in, in a situation like this. But um, anyway, if you're talking about purely economic globalization, there will be a partial transformation of that, I think, which is linked to the plans actually to um, try to attack the crucial issue of, of climate change. So that what is Biden play, planning in his American jobs plan and his huge package? Well, it's largely a process of reshoring. He wants to recreate manufacture. He wants to recreate it around renewables, around an environmental um, agenda. It's, I think, an, a, a correct position to hold. Again, we don't know how it will turn sure. out. It's much the same in the case of the European Union, where similar plans to recreate um, industry. And that, that will be a process of partial dislocation in relation to China and other states. So I didn't think you're going to go back to a period of sort of simple interconnected markets. And that's why I see this as like a crux of of world history, I don't think it's, you know, it's not extreme to put it this way because we just haven't been here before and our world is not like it was, you know, even 100 years ago. 100 years ago, you only had 1.5 billion people in the world. Now you're heading up towards 8, 8 billion people. If you multiply that by all the other changes going on, you can see what a mixture of risks and opportunities it is. And it's up to political leaders and it's up, I think, to intellectuals to try and pilot a way through this particular phase of human history. But, you know, I always get asked if I'm an optimist or a pessimist and I, I tend to bracket that out. You just don't know, this is a don't know world. So you might as well be optimistic um, because it's psychologically good, but I don't think it's a rational sense, really, in which you can be either optimist or pessimist. You have to sort out a way through this sudden um, convergence of new opportunities and new risks. Incidentally, this applies to personal life. Well, <laughs> I mean, for most of human history, gender was like a fixed thing. Yeah. It isn't now. So no. <laughs> you shouldn't underestimate the global force of those changes. For most history, women were oppressed. They're still oppressed in many ways, but the situation is in other ways quite different. Um, Black Lives Matter movement echoed around the world. Quite amazing. The impact it's had in the UK. The UK has to partly rethink its colonial history. That's why people attack statues. So this is the nature of the world. And I see these issues as not as important as climate change, but as a crucial part of the package of change and the possibilities which it offers because as i say i don't take pessimistic view 
of the state of the world. I just think that it's too open to take a position. We have to navigate away both individually, nationally and globally through these, this mixture of huge opportunities and huge risks. Have you been surprised looking back at how, how much inequality and, and how strong monopolies and uh, the level of financialization that globalism has brought about? It seems that now we have inequality and we have a, a new socialism coming out, criticizing it. And in the 90s, I think the people were more hopeful that we could tame the lines of capitalism with more moderate means. But now you've seen tech giants like Amazon, Google, Facebook, and they're kind of feeding off our individual choices as consumers. We see this financialized way of doing policies, which is in a sense just making the inequality grow between those the shareholders and those who, who don't have, have shares. And this has been kind of a conventional way of keeping the economy going, kind of technocrat, Keynesian way of, uh, of making policies today. Have you been surprised ab about the effects of financialization and tech monopolies uh, the last years? Well, I think, I think you have to actually have a bit of a historical take on that. You have to go back to 1989, because for that, the Soviet Union uh, occupied a very significant space in the global universe. With, with 1989, it seemed, I mean, Fukuyama called it the end of history, right? It seemed as though free markets were the future. It seemed as though these changes that were happening um, would become generalized. And it, as we know, that, that hasn't and couldn't have happened in that simple way. But 1989 is actually a backdrop to a great deal about what's happening in the world. 1989 was Tiananmen Square in China. That crucially reoriented towards state-driven um, ca capitalism, partly capitalism. Um, 1989 in Europe, of course, was the <laughs> demise of the, of the Soviet Union. Well, no one expected that, you know, talking about history taken by surprise. Um, I was actually, your audience might not be interested, but I was actually one of the people, I was at a conference um, in Berlin in 1989, and someone said the, the wall is opening, and we were among the first people to get on the wall, going up the ladder, and the TV crews made us come down again, I tried to, because they said they wanted to film us making history. Well, that is something quite extraordinary that you never expect to happen. Anyway, um, so, I mean, in, in Europe also, that this was a huge transformation, and the backdrop to 1989 was really a huge liberalization of the global marketplace, because it did seem like the end of history, and it did seem like a situation where there is no other way apart from capitalism. And if you look, you look at the rise of the huge digital corporations, you have to understand them against this backdrop. The digital corporations did not do the research on which their rise was based. This was done during the Cold War as an American response, as I said, to Russian primacy initially in space. Huge amounts of state money were spent 
um, developing what we now call AI and the digital revolution. 1989 came along, liberation of free markets, that created the huge digital corporations, and they are gigantic. What you have to say, however, that the counter reaction that I'm describing also certainly has the digital uh, giants in focus because um, President Biden has, has announced and got developed plans to rein back the power and the monopoly power of the digital corporations. The EU is pioneering an attempt, as we know, to introduce a framework of, of regulation into uh, the digital world. It's not easy because it's only one component of it. And then you've got um, China, uh, which from the beginning has had state-directed um, development of AI and digital corporations. And um, even there, you know, um, President Xi has just taken a stance against Jack Ma. And I think the, the government there also has worries about the power of the huge digital corporations. So who knows where, how it will turn out, but they should not have this power, not, not to shape our world. Therefore, it's quite important to me that there is a counter reaction and that this has some force and it hones on lots of the issues that, you know, it's not just fake news, but many other issues which stem from that quasi-monopoly power. And so you know, I think it could be anyway a time when there is an attempt to make a positive reaction to all of that. I think everyone can see that we can't allow ourselves just to be driven by the huge digital corporations. And we must come to terms with the slanting, dislocating effects which the digital world is having on aspects of our lives. And that's why I think the, I support the pioneering efforts of the EU, but of course, they're not uh, global, but they are setting up a framework. And I think um, Biden is serious when he says he wants to limit the power of the, <clears throat> the digital corporations. Whether he would go as far as to break them up, I think is unlikely in an American context. But um, I think there is a, you know, there are a whole series of forces at work there. And the world needs that. I mean, we didn't elect these corporations to have the gigantic power they have over our personal lives. So I think it's important to have democratic governance as far as possible reinserted there. Do you think, at least you said before that you thought the, the era of neoliberalism was over, that, that, that this is part, part of what comes out of the pandemic. And you have earlier been critical of the old left, uh, of, of the golden age, social democracy, and especially Marxist critics and the conceptions of class. And I think that was very helpful for the left in the 80s and the 90s to see, well, these old categories don't work anymore. This is not how politics is. But today, do you see, do you think the left has a new conceptual framework, reasons for for believing that they can actually make new compromises between democracy and, and capital. We see young people talking about democratic socialism. We see the spread of Thomas Piketty's ideas and, and books. And we see that even Joe Biden is heavily influenced by someone who calls himself a socialist, Bernie Sanders. So what is the question? And The question is, do, do you think the left has the ideas, the strategies and the conceptual frameworks to really 
benefit from this end of neoliberalism and, and make a new compromise between democracy and capital? Well, um, I think that will depend on two things. Uh, we need uh, to develop ideas and policies beyond those that exist at the moment. I mean, that's what, what I tried to do in the era of um, the third way. You know, it wasn't simply a, um, a how it was caricatured, you know, succumbing to neoliberalism certainly wasn't in my eyes. It, the backdrop to it was change. The backdrop to it was the early development of globalization. We've got to try and do something similar to that today, but on a much more global level. So it's a pretty demanding task. On the other hand, there are things I pointed to, you know, extraordinary transformation in American politics, in European politics, in, in China entering into the scene. Um, you know, it's a big period of transition in principle. And I'm not saying that it's sort of going to work, but I think there are many positives to it. So, uh, you know, it's a balance, again, of huge opportunities and huge risks in the political sphere as well. But I think it's up to us to seize these. And you cannot allow the world, I think, just to be driven by market forces when these have ecological consequences of which could undermine our civilization, as I've said, climate change is an issue we've never experienced before as humanity. Uh, on a cultural level, I have a, a last question for you, uh, because you, you've always described the connections between civil society, market and politics and the way uh, our culture shapes our policies and our ideas and our institutions. And I know you're a football fan. I've read that uh, earlier. And do you think what is happening with the in England now with the protest against the Super League and the fans claiming that they want to take their clubs back, the Man United fans who want to oust their American owners, do you see what is happening in, in English football now, the fans protesting against the oligarchs as a real political event that they say they don't want the oligarchs to be their men to be the owners of their football clubs anymore. Is that a significant <laughs> event? Well, I don't think I would generalize too much from that. It's an interesting episode. I mean, I was born on Tottenham High Street and I first went to see the Spurs, the football club there when I was seven years old. So I'm a genuine supporter. Um, I don't approve of the role of big money in the game, but that's how it is. But Yeah, I mean, the the I think it's important the Super League was blocked. It was an initiative taken without consultation. It was an initiative taken by the top clubs in a kind of unilateral fashion. And I think it's good the supporters got in there and essentially blocked it. I wouldn't use it as an epitome of some kind of wild <laughs> generalization about the end of neoliberalism, though. <laughs> I would like to see much more modification of the role of money in football because, you know, it's basically which clubs are richest are the ones that succeed. And then you come back, for example, to oil money because oil money is quite important, let's say, in terms of the ownership of some football clubs. So I, I think we, we certainly would, I would like a more democratic way of running football and sport more generally, but 
that would be very difficult to make happen. It is another example of where I started back to globalization because football is watched across so many countries in the world now and um, instantaneously by many, many millions of people. So it's a huge global force in its own right. And of course, you didn't have women's football before the last sort of 10 to 15 years and now. Well, it's really important. I think it's like a global phenomenon too. I mean, football existed for a hundred years before anyone thought that. So don't just laugh at it. It's, you know, it's quite actually quite my my thing. So. my girl is a big soccer player, and I've been a soccer coach in America for girls once. So, so I'm just delighted that it's spreading. I think it actually is the fastest growing sport in the world, girls soccer at the moment. Yeah. Well, I, it takes me back to my beginning because I wrote my dissertation. I said at the LSE on sociology of sport. So. I don't re regard sport as just a marginal thing, but as a core part of the wider world. And so it is. Well, we ended where we started. It was such a pleasure talking to you. It was such a pleasure. Thank you. To you. So instructive and so entertaining from my point of view too. And really good uh, conversation, if I might say so. And we wish you the best. Have a good evening and have a good summer. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Det var så min samtale med Anthony Giddens. I næste uge skal vi et helt andet sted hen. Der skal vi tale om, hvordan man opbygger en progressiv bevægelse med en mand, der har været med til det i 60 år. Det er Marshall Gans, som i 1960'erne var med til at lave nogle meget stærke bevægelser i sydstaterne og var med til at lave en meget stærk arbejderbevægelse i Kalifornien. Siden har han været med til at lave Obama-bevægelsen og har været med til at instruere de unge i, hvordan man skal lave en stærk klimabevægelse i dag. Marshall Gans har 60 års erfaring i at lave stærke, progressive bevægelser. Han vil svare på alle mine spørgsmål om, hvordan man laver en stærk bevægelse i dag, hvordan bevægelser skal forholde sig til magt, og også hvordan bevægelser skal forhindre sig selv i at gå over gevind og ødelægge den sag, som de gerne vil tjene. Jeg håber, vi høres ved i næste uge.